Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am delighted to be joined on a beautiful Monday by Connie Nelson, who plays a very, very special role, not only in the Olympic Games, but in their legacy. And so I'm really excited to speak with you, Connie, today and for you to share your story. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your program and an honor to uh, be um, part of this history that you and legacy that you're creating, uh, Christian. It's important to keep the oral history going. So thank you on behalf of um, all people who were involved with the 2002 Games. I appreciate your work and your volunteerism. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. When I set out to do this, I didn't realize that what I that's what I was doing. I was just... I was just uh, wanting to talk to some old friends and and to capture some of these stories, and it's been a lot of fun. But you're right; I think you are, I don't know, episode eighty eight or ninety or something. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a growing compendium of stories, oral histories, as you say, and collectively, I think they are becoming important. So yes. it's really great to talk with you because you are a keeper of history of the games. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on currently? Okay, well, currently I'm the executive director of the Althing and Ski Museum and operate both the um, Ski Museum on the first floor and also the 2002 Olympic Winter Games Museum on the second floor. So what I'm currently working on is um, a second half of the museum on the first floor update, a million dollar update that is scheduled for um, installation in September and uh, opening in November. So it's hard to believe that what has it been, 19 years since the 2002 Games? And I'm still here. I'm still in, I'm still in, the, in the Utah Olympic Park. I just hide back here and hope no one notices because <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> so this work with the museum sounds super cool. How did you end up getting involved in it? Oh, the journey. The journey to uh, today has been so much fun. Um, well, right after the games, um, well, shall I start during the games? What, what my job was? We'll get back. We'll get to the games time here in a moment, but why don't you just tell us briefly, I guess you can give us a, a very, very quick recap of what you were doing that led to uh-huh. how you got involved in what you're doing now with the museums. Okay. So I was working here at the Utah Olympic park as, um, and I have my card here, business operations manager for Utah Olympic Park, um, hired by SLOC, the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Um, I was hired in March, uh, no, I was hired in January 2000 um, to be the business director. And then um, after the games, then I um, was very sad. And like most people who are involved with the games, either as an employee or a volunteer, uh, because it's so much fun and excitement. And um, prior to the games, They were building this big 30,000 square foot building right outside my door. I was working at the um, day lodge here at Utah Olympic Park. And I kept wondering and being part of the meeting of this big 30,000 square foot building. And it's the Joe Quinney Winter Sports Center. And so um, in after the games, um, Craig Leto, who was the uh, general manager of Utah Olympic Park, um, he was my boss, said to me, well, why don't you apply for a job working at the Joe Quinney Winter Sports Center since you love it here so much? So I did, and I was hired in March, uh, sorry, January 2000. Uh, sorry, I was hired to be the um, 
assistant director of the Alfing and Ski Museum, March 2000. So right after the games finished in February, I started as assistant director here um, at the Alfing and Ski Museum um, with because I have a master's degree in sports administration from Australia. And um, it fit really nicely with, um, I also had a, a degree in teaching. So we have, you know, education programs, the history and administration. So it all just really folded nicely into just one great big sleigh of having a Utah Olympic Park uh, for my life. <laughs> and it's, I've, I've been very blessed and fortunate to be able to call this um not only my job, but my home. And I feel like it's um, Utah Olympic Park is part of me. And I feel like I have um, a stake in its success um, right from the beginning in 2000, right up to now, 2021. So I just, I feel it's, it's, it's such a great energy and continues to be a great energy for all who visit. Some 500,000 people a year come to the Utah Olympic Park to come through not only the museums, but to see the athletes and to participate in all that we have to offer here at the park. So I've been very fortunate to be here from 2000 to now, and hopefully in the future. <laughs> well, I hope so, too. It's interesting that you talk about it being your office, but also your home. So I guess technically you could say you are joining us from your home office because it looks like you're actually in a on an office location, but it's not at your physical home address. No, yeah, I have all the pictures from the 2002 games behind me and artifacts from other games. That you can see because I was in Australia for 20 years, the Melbourne Games, um, 1956 poster back there. So I get to relive the games every single day. Uh, Christy and I get to go upstairs and watch people come through the museum and listen to the videos. And it's it, it really is it's an important part of my life. And it is funny because every time I come up the hill to Utah Olympic Park, I'm always so excited to see who, what's going to happen today, whether it's going to be new people or athletes doing the moguls in the back behind the museum, or if it's a family from Florida who drove here, um, you know, to, to experience snow. Every day is a different day. And it's it really is a so much fun. And I, I wish everyone could have as much fun as I do because it is a good life. Well, it does sound like a good life. You mentioned just a moment ago that half a million people a year come through the premises and visit the museum and see the athletes and all that kind of stuff. But what about during COVID? Did the museums have to shut down? Did the park have to shut down for COVID? Is it still open? Is it operational? Can people still go and see all that there is to see there at the park? That's a really good question. Yeah, that uh, I was just talking to um, one of our Hall of Famers this morning, and he called to ask if we were open because he wanted to bring his family in March. Yes, yeah, so March 15th, 2020, that day. Um, I remember coming out of the Uintas and hearing that the first community case happened here in Summit County, and uh, they were starting to shut things down. Um, each of the ski resorts, um, first, I don't remember which was first, one of them, either Deer Valley or Park City, um, closed down. And then next we heard Deer Valley, next we heard just all the ski resorts systematically started shutting down. And so I came into work and I I said, we're going to shut down. Uh, so that was March 15th. And then uh, Summit County 
did shut down every business here in Summit County to the point that I couldn't, the, the, the car, the Utah Olympic Park was actually gated. I couldn't even, we couldn't even get into our offices. So um, it was, it was, it was a really weird time packing up everything. Like I said, this is my home. And it was very uh, unsettling for me to, to, as I was saying, this is my home to take everything from here and bring it to my home, which is only 10 minutes away. But this is, this is where the action is. This is where, you know, everything happens. The hill of dreams is what I call it. This is, this is, this is what I live for. And yeah, just to shut down on March 15th, um, it was, it was weird. And I know everybody has their stories, but I remember, you know, starting to think, okay, well, how am I going to save this? How are we going to do this? Because we were a museum. The only way that we operate is by people coming into our museum and everything that I've worked toward, the interactive exhibits, they're all touch, feel, listen, the kinesthetic. Well, COVID is the antithesis of that. Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't get too close. <laughs> so it's like, well, everything is interactive. We've worked for that over the last 20 years. So how are we going to operate? Um, how will we change things? Will we operate? Will we close? I mean, nobody knew. And so I just immediately started getting busy writing grants, getting the payroll protection program to keep the employees, um, talking to other um, executive directors in Summit County, you know, what are you doing? What are you applying for? And anyway, going from there, for 10 weeks, we were closed till May 26th. So um, I was part of a uh, Utah, uh, sorry, it was a Summit County Arts and Culture Group, one of four people to um, from the Arts and Culture District uh, looking at how, what are the policies, procedures, and protocol for reopening based on, you know, county, state, and national guidelines for COVID. And it was hard. You, we had to look at spacing, signage, um, cleaning stations, sanitizing stations, uh, employees, uh, masks, um, PPP, you know, the professional, the personal protective equipment. And it was just so much directional, how, you know, keeping people in the same flow. Anyway, we, we came up with um, um, a Summit County Arts and Culture um, policies and procedures for reopening. And at that time, we had to have Summit County come and they had to review our policies and procedures before we were allowed to open. You had to have a, a document on your front door. So we were one of the first to open, May 26th, opened the front doors. It was scary because, you know, it seemed like an invisible enemy. We didn't know what was going to happen. You know, the people from outside of Utah were the ones that we were worried about. You know, New York, California, Arizona, <laughs> those are our people. That's what who we rely on to to bring us um, to, to be open, you know, it, we, it was really scary, but anyway, we opened slowly. We didn't um, have many of our interactives open, um, just where people could go through and read. We had staff clean after every single guest. And by the way, one year later, we still clean after every guest. Um, it's, we're, we're almost at the numbers we were in 2019, not quite, but yeah, it's it's it, we, we still have a couple of exhibits closed because of the not being able to clean like the downhill slalom. So yes, we were closed for ten weeks. We're open, and we welcome people. Um, I am out there saying, put on your mask every day or over your nose. Um, and, but you know, people generally speaking are very receptive. 
they're very so thankful to be able to bring their family to an educational as well as entertaining uh, museums, two museums free of charge. And we have an interactive um, sport exhibit too that people can try the bobsled, um, speed flying off uh, Mount Superior, uh, mountain bike ride at Deer Valley, and also a powder run at Altus. So, and a Nordic ski jump. Those are five dollars per person, but. But generally speaking, families are very appreciative and follow the rules. And, you know, like on Saturday, just this past Saturday, we had 451 people through the museum. So they're here. They're visiting. Um, slowly but surely, we're getting back to last year's uh, numbers, which is great. I want to go check it out myself. Uh, I was curious when you said, you know, given the the large number of of out of state people coming in, you have a rough idea of how many people come through there local versus out of state people. I do. Um, 78% are from out of Summit County. And it's, you know, this is, it's interesting. It's, it's a big percentage because in Summit County, what do we have? 26,000 people. So outside, um, you know, mostly it's it's people from out of state. Um, during like last week, President's Week, a lot of schools were out, so we had a lot from Provo or Orem. But but we're a destination. The Utah Olympic Park. You'll hear people say, "I want to go up there and see what's up there." Um, so yeah, most are from out of Summit County, and you know those are that's why we're scared because you know if I any point in time I drive through the walk through the parking lot, there's California, there's Texas. You know, there's um, Florida, there's New Jersey. They want to escape those big cities and they want to to jump in their cars. A lot of them are remote working. A lot of them have their kids um, that they're tutoring from home. So they're they're here and it's great. But it's, you know, I'm just, yay, you're here. Let's keep our distance and your mask on <laughs> and enjoy. But it's it's great. Well, hopefully they'll keep rolling the vaccines out and pretty soon, I don't know if it'll ever be the same, but at least we'll be able to perhaps relax a little bit and enjoy each other's company a little more. Yeah, I know. That's that's what I miss is um, just being able to see people's faces, um, you know, and their expressions when they're on the exhibits or experiencing the exhibits. But um, yeah, it's, you know, we took all the chairs out of the theater just so you don't have to clean every single time. So people are standing. So there's there's just little things, but you know, it's, it's, we're open and we're safe. Knock on wood. Everything's been great, but, but we're diligent. I mean, we, we are after literally each guest, we make them stop. We get up onto the quad chair, wipe everything down. And we have um, cleaning stations throughout. And, you know, I think people are appreciative of, um, you know, all of the measures we've gone to, to ensure their safety and, and cleanliness. So, yeah, hopefully we get back someday. But yeah, things are things are great here. Come up and visit. All right. I'm going to take you up on that and see all that you have to offer there. Let's go back in time okay. to the Salt Lake 2002 games, the reason for having this little crazy podcast. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you had a degree in education, uh, teaching, and you also had a master's in sports administration from Australia. Yes. So that begs the question, how in the world did you end up in Salt Lake City 
working at Utah Olympic Park. It's a crazy story. Everyone has a story. And that's what's fun about museums. Everyone has stories. Um, yes. So I was working for the Australian Sports Commission um, in Australia. Um, and one of my jobs was um, as a sport um, coordinator and working with sports and uh, helping them with strategic planning, with looking at funding, um, government funding, and also a lot of, um, it was a t- I would do a lot of um, uh, talks to them to on how they could better um, organize their organization in terms of not only the planning, but the implementation out into the development of the, of the kids and all the way up to the elite athletes. Um, Australia has a really good um, uh, sports program going from the base level Aussie sports for modified sport for kids all the way up to um, very um, the top of the pyramid athletes. I mean, per capita, their athletes are are unbelievable because they have a sports institute and a, and a, a whole administration dedicated to athletes. So I was working with the sports administration and I came to um, Utah to ski. Um, I always would take a vacation and ski in either California or Montana because that's where my family is. And um, everybody in Australia was, oh, you got to stop in Utah. I go, oh, what's in Utah? It's desert. They go, no, you got to, we got to have a week in Utah skiing. So skiing at Alta. And uh, yeah, then it was from there, I, I learned about the games coming, learned about how, um, what, what excitement was here. And um, anyway, I ended up moving here and hired by Slock to be the business operations manager. Um, and I was just thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. So it was a ski, a ski uh, vacation was the reason I was here. <laughs> that is so interesting uh, that skiing brought you here. Yeah. But tell us what a business manager does at a venue like Utah Olympic Park. You 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 have the title, but what does that role actually entail? Boy, and that was at that time, um, Utah Olympic Park was just starting in 2000. It had, you know, had the the track, which and also they had the K90, which um, they were building into the K90 and 120, all in the 90s to attract the games, so that um, we could be the bid city. Um, and to prove that um, the state was ready for a, a games, so um, you know, I was, I was um, pretty much, and that's one of my things at the end of our talk was, you know, really as um, as a part of any organization, I think you need to be willing to do anything. So as a business manager, my, you know, my my job was to make sure that this um, this place was going to be ready for. Utility Park was going to be ready for the games. And also another portfolio of mine was to ensure the legacy. How was it going to be sustainable? And I was quizzed regularly by the, the lead in SLOC. How is the Utah Olympic Park going to continue to be open and, and able and athletes and visitors able to visit Utah Olympic Park in the future? We don't want to have a shuttered big white elephant. How is that going to happen? And so um, part of my job, and I had a lot of help was to work out how much um, our our costs were, whether it was maintenance, um, whether it was the utility bills, uh, making ice, uh, uh, anything to do with staffing. So the infrastructure of the business, how much did it cost per athlete to jump off the K-120? 
And how did you get to that point? What, how, what was the formula that you used? And okay, if it costs that much, how much are we going to need in reserves to ensure that we have the K120 ready for a ski jumper to go off or for the bobsled loose skeleton athlete to go down the track? What's the infrastructure? How much do we need to bring in in revenue? And so, you know, from there was born the, the a lot of the business model, and that was um, passenger rides on bobsleds. I was uh, one of the first to get that organized and worked out that you could increase your uh, productivity by 33% by having the driver of the bobsled also be the brakeman. So we worked with Podar, and um, that's the, the sled company to um, come up with a, a prototype where the the um, bobsled driver was also the brakeman. So then you had three people who were paying passengers rather than just two, because it started with the driver and the brakeman and then two paying passengers. So you increase your productivity by 33% by having just one person do both the brake. So that was one of the things, um, uh, bringing revenue in by having visitors um, pay to experience um, a tour pay to maybe do the bobsled, do the skeleton. We had skeleton for, for visitors, um, luge, different activities. And as you can see now, 2021, I mean, if you walk outside at any point in time in the summer here, there's more people doing activities in this park than athletes doing activities in this park. There's um, adventure courses, there's zip rides, there's, you know, there's just, there's, there's airbags. There's just so much um, excitement for, for people to feel and be part of the Utah Olympic Park, and to also see the athletes training, um, especially in the summer. But um, yeah, so the businessman, you know, way back then, I had to report um, every two weeks to either Mitt Romney or Fraser Bullock and um, say how we were going to be sustainable in the future, and you know, manage staff, um, help with anything organizing, whether it was moving barricades. Um, we had seven test events in seven weeks. That was our big thing working with the, um, the crews here, um, managing how the athletes came in, organizing how people would come into the, uh, to the Utah Olympic Park, how they would access, so you know, ingress, egress, things like you probably talked to all the other folks about, and you know, how do you get all the visitors in? Um, how do you get all the visitors out? So we were managing all that through the test events. And um, yeah, so every day was a different thing. We had a retail store that was run by one of our local businesses called Jans. We also had a cafe that was run by, and we had events, um, we had caterers. So everything's just started building from a very small staff um, to what it is today. So the business manager was, was important in terms of how are we going to be sustainable? And I felt that was so important. And that's why I love still being here. Well, did you know how challenging it would be going in? I mean, the 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 bobsled track is one of the most difficult venues to build a legacy on because I mean, the alpine venues, they're ski resorts, okay, they they have revenue generating models and the ice venues generally speaking do too, although speed skating um, might be a difficult one, but generally speaking, these bobsled tracks are very expensive to maintain and most cities oftentimes have a very difficult time with these tracks sustaining yeah. a legacy. So did you understand the magnitude of that challenge coming in or was a bit of a shock to you when you came? Yeah, it was a total shock. Um, you know, what was interesting, Christian, was um, how coming from Australia, where everything's federally based in terms of funding, they allocate funding for athletes, funding for venues. 
to realize, you know, go into Craig Leto's office and go, okay, so where's our line item for this, this, and this? And he goes, we have to raise that money. I'm like, whoa, we do? So to to be able to, to have a sustainable legacy, we had to do it ourselves. You couldn't rely on the state or the or the federal government. It had to be from within. Um, and that's that. I think that was the biggest shock coming into this was we have to do it all ourselves. Whether you charge athletes, which you know athletes don't have money, whether you charge their the national governing bodies. Well, everyone's just, you know trying to do what they can, but this is a huge elephant. I mean, it is a lot of expenditure. Like you said, I mean, it was. I can't remember the exact figure, but something like $110 per Nordic ski jumper to go off the ski jump. That's per jump. And, you know, that was the the number I came up with when you look at all of the infrastructure to get that person off the jump, whether it's staff or hill crew or, you know, whatever it is to get that, that jumper in the in run to jump off the Nordic ski jump. So the magnitude, I had no idea. Um, but then, you know, I got really got into it and I thought, no, we can do this. And um, it, you know, and Colin Hilton's leading the group now and he was part of the games and uh, he was in charge of all three venues here at Park City. I worked with him and um, it was it's fun now that he's taken it to a new level and keeping the funding going. And also, obviously, after the games with the 78 million that was left over in terms of legacy, that was huge. And that was thanks to all of the, the leadership in SLOC. Um, that's how we are where we are and continue to be one of the leading um, Olympic venues still operational in the world, actually. I know that you and I talked about going to Rio. I went to Rio as a spectator with an Olympic athlete, former Olympic athlete, and their venues were magnificent. It was unbelievable what they had created in a small amount of time and the, you know, the bullet train that was so fast, their, their transportation system. And everything, the, the hype and the, everything was just so cool. And then to see on the news how it was in disarray and showing the, the stands that I sat in to watch the water polo, just, you know, with, you know, tumbleweeds going through, it was really sad. So um, in answer to your question, um, I did not know the magnitude um, until I got into the position. And I did not realize um, how amazing we had done with that that legacy and with the sustainability of all the infrastructures we put into place right at the beginning and throughout from the people who have followed me um, to now um, how 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 unique we are and how well run the Utah Olympic Park is and all the legacy venues um, because we care and we we can sustain it um, through visitors uh, but yeah it was a whole series of you know we we have to be sustainable number one some funds were left over because we had good management and now we continue to have good management and we have um, the opportunity to raise funds through people experiencing um, activities here at the Houston Big Park and in the museum. All right. Well, let's get into these complexities a little bit further okay. because it sounds to me like uh, number one, you are having to build this legacy plan. Number two, you are having to plan to host an Olympic Games or a series of events, uh, sports there at Utah Olympic Park. Number three, you have ongoing operations. You have this retail store. You 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 have things that are generating revenue for the park itself. So you have 
and, and you're running all these test events. So it sounds to me like you're juggling a lot of balls in the air. How do you maintain any sense of balance and how do you establish priorities in this kind of crazy environment where you have so many different objectives? I got to build a legacy. I got to host the spectacular games. I got to help train athletes. And I have a bunch of stuff that we're doing here to uh, generate revenues and maintain the operations of this of this new jewel of the Salt Lake 2002 games. I'll tell you how. The, and I still continue to do this. You surround yourself with people smarter than you. <laughs> and that's not even joking. You build a team that has specialty and knowledge and foresight. So um, we had a, a fellow who was incredible with the with the numbers, who was a, like a brilliant mathematician in terms of working out what are the what is the formula to look at per jump, how much when you feed in all of the data and all the variables into that one ski jump. And this fellow's name was Blent Bullet, and he's still around. Um, he's got a family now. He was an intern, so he was a key component in terms of how what are the what are the, the statistics? How are we going to do this? So you you get that you get somebody who's a a really good manager of, of athletes and then a really good manager of the facilities. Um, somebody who knows how the track works. Tracy Seitz was a master um, Iceman. He was called the Iceman. So he was in charge of the track and making sure everything on the track was 100% for the athlete. So it was called the fastest, fastest ice on, the, you know, on earth. And so you just, um, Kristen, you, you surround yourself with people who are good at what they do and you just, you try to get them all working together and managing and you build excitement. I mean, we had the most exciting thing coming. We had the Olympics and we had athletes. Athletes create such an inspiration to, to everyone. It's, it's amazing. They, they dedicate their body and life to that sport. And so we are in charge of dedicating our body and life to making sure that they can be the best they can be at that time for that Olympics. So um, building a good team, I think that's the key because you can't do it all, <laughs> even though you may try, you have to have really good help. Well, where do you find these people? You mentioned that this one gentleman was an intern. Uh, yeah. You got this ice dude. Like, <laughs> How do you go? How do you go about actually building a good team that, that not only has, expertise in certain areas, but also has this real excitement and a total belief in what you're doing. Yeah, it's a lot of networking. Um, we actually took trips up to Calgary. Um, that's where the Iceman was. Um, look at um, you know, what they're doing up there. Look at the history. What happened in Lake Placid? What happened in Calgary? What happened in other areas? How can, how can history um, help and um, make us the best we can be? So, and just, you have to network, you have to talk to other people. You can't work in a vacuum. It has to be, it just has to be communication. And I still, to this day, if I, if I need another employee for whatever's going on, I have a chat to a friend or to a colleague and go, do you know anybody who might have this expertise or who could do good marketing or do you know somebody who's interested in, and, and, you know, just, you, you just talk to people and you, you get like-minded people together. And people who are really excited about the games. That was the interesting thing about the games. And I don't know if you found this in your position too, was a lot of people went from games to games to games. I think Colin Hill was one of those who'd been to a few. Some of my friends in Australia, um, they had been to three or four games. And they, they, they 
knew what to do. And that expertise of having been in other organizations was really vital. And to look at other games and say, well, how did you do the scoring? How, what um, mechanisms did you use for the, the timing eye on the track um, or for the ski jump? So lots of, and the sports, the sports themselves were huge components of making this the best it could be because I go, well, this doesn't work or this does work. So yeah, just, just chatting and communicating and just communication. There's no other word for it is to find out, find the best people you can. And that's what I still do. (laughs) Well, you told us a few moments ago that the athletes were a real inspiration. And I want to dig into that a little bit more if I can. What was it about the athletes that you found so inspiring? Were there specific things that they were doing in training or performances or stories that you that you heard from them that really helped motivate you and your team? Oh, boy. Okay. So I was a triathlete in Australia. And so I, I thought I would, and I was, I'm a skier and, you know, I thought I was pretty athletic. Um, remember, this is coming from me thinking I'm athletic. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be the business manager of sports that I haven't tried. So right off the bat, I'm going to try bobsled, luge, skeleton, ski jumping, and see what, and freestyle, see what the athlete feels. Um, and what I came up with was there, A, they're, it's very dangerous sports, every one of them. B, they're very skilled and focused because if you make a mistake in any of those in any way, it's you're going to get hurt bad. Um, so the inspiration was, wow, these, these athletes are so amazing at what they do. If they're flipping and turning in the air and landing on a snow, on a, a cliff, a snow cliff, you know, it's just incredible. And you, you just watch it. One of my first experiences of watching a ski jumper, um, you know, when I first started this job, I wandered down to the K64, which was a smaller big jump, not the ones behind here in the, uh, the museum, and just standing there quietly waiting to see the ski jumpers. And I'm standing next to some moms, and I look up, and I see the kid going down the end run, hitting the jump and landing. And I just looked at her, and I go, how do you let your kid do this? That looks really dangerous. (laughs) And you can see all the moms like gasp. And, you know, they, the kids grew up doing this. They, they started here at Utah Lake Park. I just happened to be coming in as a, as somebody seeing it for the first time. And it might, that was my honest, honest reaction was, how could you let your kid do this? That looks really dangerous. So yeah, it was fun to see the the parents just gasp at me like, who is she? (laughs) So it was, you know, the athletes are so um, focused and even from the young age and what a great, um, what a great facility to have for people who live here in Utah and to have for their kids to experience. Um, Yeah. So the athletes are every day I'd go up to the top of the bobsled blue skeleton track and watch those athletes push their sled, jump on them or in them and, or, you know, do the um, luge, the toe and just like go, how amazing to hit those corners at five G's, five times their body weight and have the skill and the knowledge to come out of it and not crash and burn. Because I did um, with the luge trying to steer it. Of course, remember, I only had like three turns because um, I start you from the tour start as a, as a, as a rookie like me, but I was just like, oh my gosh, I had so much respect for him because it's so much, um, so much training and so much 
um, laser sharp focus. So yeah, inspiration every day, still, still to this day. I want to come back to test events. You mentioned you had seven test events there. Yeah. What were some of the things that you learned in those test events that helped you deliver the games successfully? A lot of things like how to manage um, the, the um, volunteers. Uh, volunteers were a big part of my job too, and they still are in this job. How to, how to, how to make sure that every volunteer feels that they're useful um, that they're um, actually achieving something and creating a difference. Um, you can't have a volu- you can't have a games or a test events without volunteers. They're the key. They really are. They they're the ones who are doing the work. The yellow jackets were the work workers, worker bees, um, which was so ironic. They had the yellow jackets, but anyway, they they so learning how to manage the those volunteers and many of the volunteers, most of the volunteers stayed for the games. Learning how to ingress. Um, the uh, spectators and egress them. How do we get them safely into the venue and out of the venue? Um, what are the um, how are the transportation system? How do we get athletes to the top? We, do we bring them at the back, which we ended up doing? Do we bring them up through the the back in um, the neighborhood behind us? Um, do, how do we how do we get how do we feed everybody? I mean, how how many bathrooms do you need? You know, all of these these little details that are huge details. For everybody, um, how do we test? Um, how do we drug test? Um, how much? How, where do we need the tents? What tent is needed where? When the athletes were also part of it and saying, "Hey, you know what? We need this, this, and this." Um, you didn't have you didn't have a place for us to to you know wax our um, our our blades. You know, they, there's always something that we were learning in terms of what the athlete needs, what the spectator needs, what the volunteer needs to be doing or needs from us. So it was, it was, um, they were great learning opportunities uh, for us. And I think we created the best games ever, but I'm very biased. Um, But, you know, just because of the flow, you you think of the transportation, there's so many people in Park City that left Park City because they thought it was going to be horrible. And then they, they left and they went for two weeks and rented their place and they wish they would have stayed because transportation was not a problem. It was well run. Um, the um, egress and egress, ingress and egress of all of the venues, including ours, even though some people had to walk the Miracle Mile, the Magic Mile, which you did, uh, from the parking lot at the base to the Islamic Park. So they, we made it fun. We gave them a, a little uh, pin. Now, pins were a big part of it. So we learned that people are motivated um, by a pin or they're motivated by giving them a you know, bell and cheering them as they go up. Miracle Mile. So anyway, it's, 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 we learned a lot from the test events and I know that other organizations and games do that, but it's, it really is vital to ensure and practice. So everybody knows what to do when the games hit. Well, you talk about that Miracle Mile. It reminds me of the conversation we have with Christy Nicolay, who they created the little radio station and they had the phone booths where you could call in, you could nominate song or you could guess what the song is going to be. And you got a prize if you got up to the top and all this kind of stuff, you guys did make it really fun. I mean, you know, walking a mile uphill inherently in the middle of winter, not so fun, but you did whatever you could to make it fun. And that actually takes me to games time for you. So what was, what was life like for you during the games themselves? It was such a blur and the best part of my life. Um, my family came in from Australia and stayed at my house. So 
Um, I was working 17 hour days and um, it was, it was just so much fun. I was part of the event management team and uh, there were three venues considered three venues here at Utah park. There was the ski jumping hill. There was the, there is the track and there was also the parking. So my job, I was overseeing the parking and that was considered a venue because that's where people parked. And there was, there was so many variables happening down in the parking lot. You had the mag and bag. So I was in charge of the Leos here, the law enforcement officers and the mag and bag. Um, I was in charge of making sure that everybody was parked correctly and that everybody got through and everyone got to the top, that the bus, the bus system for picking up people. Um, so it was in the ingress. And sometimes we had ingress and egress um, in the morning ski jumping and maybe in the afternoon, um, the bobsled loser skeleton. So sometimes two events a day happened here at Utopic Park. So, so my day was um, 4.30 a.m. down at the Mag and Bag. You got to set up all the, all the stations for walking, you know, all of the, you remember you had to be, um, had the mag card to make sure you didn't have any metal um, to make sure everybody was, cause you know, it was right after 9-11. It was, it was, it was a tricky time. Um, and it was, it was fun, but it, you know, what, just like with COVID, we just had to do all of the restrictions and cross checks and check and cross check to make sure that it was safe, safe for the athletes, safe for the guests, uh, safe for the staff. And we're still doing that today with COVID, but um, yeah. So for me, it was um, it was just a blur and um, of fun um, and energy, and I loved all the people. It was like a great big party every single day. And um, going into the tent, you know, we always remember as as people who as employees going into the tent with the volunteers and having breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You know, the porridge in the morning. Uh, you know the you gotta remember the porridge. It was in the pop tarts, whatever. Whoever was sponsoring Kellogg's, that's that's what we were eating. And you know, after 17 days, it got to be a lot, but it was so fun. It was it was it was just laughter. It was sunshine. It was um, snowstorms. It was wind. It was not you know. It was beautiful. So it was it was just a lot. But everyone had a story, like you said, who came up the hill. Everyone had a story who was leaving. Um, the athletes created history. Uh, it was, it was one big party, 17 days long, and I loved it and I would do it again. <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever met anyone who so enthusiastically spoke about working in a parking lot for 17 hours a day, for 17 days straight, uh, <laughs> as kind of the highlight of their lives, but whatever. Did you get an opportunity to see any of the competitions or do anything else outside the parking lot while you were working during the game? <laughs> if there ever is a games again, I'm going to make sure I'm outside the parking lot because I did miss out on a lot, but I did. Yes. I would walk the, that miracle mile many times. I was very fit at the end of those 17 days. And I did get the opportunity to watch um, the ski jumping. Um, I did get the opportunity to watch Jimmy Shea win gold. I'm in a snowstorm, Tristan Gale win gold. Those were some, they're so clear in my head, those, those, those particular days and those events. Um, so yeah, I did get a chance to. Uh, Craig Leto did let us have, I think a half day off once and we went to Soldier Hollow and watched some of the biathlon. Um, so that was super fun. 
I did get to go to an event at um, Deer Valley, the um, the freestyle, uh, because you know it's a component of here. But I never got down to the Galvin Center because it was just that extra down to Salt Lake, and I I regret that because my friends were all having a blast. You know, they were they were all going to you know the concerts at Galvin Center, the train, you know the the group, and you know it was that part was I do. Those, that's my regret is I didn't get a chance to go do those things. But I did go down to Park City and walk through town and talk to guests. So, uh, yeah, I, was a, I, had a, I had a great time. I did not see my family. Um, I, my mom did all my wash so that when I got up in the morning, I had, you know, fresh clothes. And when I got home, I'd put them in a pile and come up the next morning and they would be all clean. So, so I had a team behind me. <laughs> so that was important to have a team. but. But it was it was just one big party, and you know people down at the Mag and Bag they were excited to be there. Nobody, and we really didn't have many grumpy people because they were so excited to be at the games. And we've been waiting for so long to get the games here in Utah, so it was it was it was fun. But yeah, I just love people. That's why I'm still here. I just love listening to people and finding out who, where, what, how did they get here? What are you doing? So it's just the same thing I'm doing now. <laughs> Well, if we do get another games, yes, I do hope that you can work in some place besides the parking lot. But it sounds like you made the most out of that and it's not a blast. Now, we typically end our Salt Lake 2002 retrospective segment on a goosebump memory. But before we get there, I know that you you wrote down some stories and memories and things like that. So I want to make sure we get to those. Have we left anything out that you want to... Yeah. Reflect on before we get to your goosebump moment. I think I better tell people how dorky I am. And um, so right off the bat, um, you know, like I said, one of the, my favorite thing is um, of my job and still is, is meeting people. Uh, but I'm not necessarily a movie buff um, or watch TV because I had come from Australia and, you know, was a triathlete and surfed and whatever. So I didn't do a lot of TV watching. So Part of my job here at Utah Lake Park was looking after VIPs. And so that was really important that I, I can schmooze with the best of them and I have so much fun. So, but I wouldn't necessarily know who they were. So that do you know who I am? Would never worked on me because I didn't know who they were. So <laughs> well, there's a couple of fun stories. So one time I was leading a VIP group um, up to the top of the bobsled one evening. And um, I was told, you know, these are really important people. And, and I always try to quiz whoever was around me. So who are they? Like, what do they do? And I just got a really quick clip on this one particular family, uh, a fellow and his wife. And they said, well, it's Wilson. You know, don't you know Wilson? I'm like, I don't know Wilson. So anyway, so I was in a car leading their, their limo up to the top of the bobsled so they can do the bobsled. They're really nice, um, not pretentious at all. Um, so really friendly and so on the drive up to the top of the bobsled from here, I called my phone a friend who knows it all. She's the trivia queen. I said, okay, what's this Wilson? I don't know. It was some movie that's on. She goes, oh, that's Tom Hanks and his wife from Castaway. Wilson is the ball in the movie. I go, that's Tom Hanks. And then sure enough, I got out of the car. I'm like, yep, that's him. <laughs> of course, you know, I don't. They're out of context. I don't know who Wilson is. I hadn't watched the movie. Anyway, so I did watch the movie after that. And then one more fun story that, you know, I mean, I did know who this person was, but um, um, it, I had a pickup truck GMC sponsored. So I was able to have um, 
a GMC sponsorship vehicle. So I had a pickup truck. And so I was responsible for taking this VIP to the outrun of the K64 for a, um, a clip. And there, you know, we had sponsorship here. We had um, movies here. We had um, a lot of ads, um, you know, Visa, whatever. So this happened to be a guy with a huge chin. I remember looking over and going, where have I seen that chin? I can't remember. It was Jay Leno. And he's the nicest guy. And all he talked to me about was the truck and how, you know, what, what, what sort of engine it had and what, you know, how they had in, improved this. Come to find out, you probably know, you know, Jay Leno has a whole garage, you know, a whole level of his house is all the vehicles. So it was fun for me to meet people who are just so diverse and so human and just love to be at the game. So they were doing a, a film shoot of him going in a lounge chair off the K64 on skis. So anyway, I just had so much fun with everything that was happening. So that was just a couple of fun stories that, you know, that it was, it was just fun. <laughs> Tom Hanks and Jay Leno. Yeah. Jay's got hundreds of vehicles. Does he? Uh, he, yeah, he's, he's a huge car buff. Um, and he really knows the stuff when it comes to cars. Oh, he told me the and, whole engine structure of the GMC that I was driving, the Silverado. I'm like, does he work for Chevrolet? <laughs> and Tom Hanks, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to find a bigger star, right? Than Tom Hanks. <laughs> it was so much fun. And they're, he's, they're so human. You know, there wasn't any pretense. It was just like you and I having a chat right now. I mean, Jay Leno was asking me more questions about Australia because he hadn't been to Perth, which is where I'm from. I'm a dual citizen. And he was like, well, so what, what is it like there? Just like nobody ever goes to Perth. And I go, that's why it has great beaches. Nobody ever goes there. <laughs> so he was, it was super nice. And um, yeah. So nice you're a dual citizen Australian, but you don't speak with an Australian accent. I been back here since the games i never left i mean i never went back to australia <laughs> so did you just lose it you just adopted the the local the local accent then well i was born in montana my mom and my mom took us to australia she's a professor of indigenous education so at the edith cowan university in perth so i kind of grew up and went to college and uni there my started my career there and so, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of both. If I get to the Sydney airport and start listening to the Aussies, or if I have a friend here from Australia, it comes back. But for now, yeah, it's gone. <laughs> no Australian accent. But they're everywhere here. I can tell you, they visit. <laughs> it, it's funny you say that. My my stepfather, he he's from West Virginia. All of his family are from back there. And they have this really thick hillbilly accent and if i would go back there to visit within a couple of hours i would start sounding like them uh it just happens yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a huge tangent let's get back to salt lake um any other mm -hmm. stories you got on your list before we get to your goosebump moment um you know i just want to um tell people um in terms of their career and their life because this is my life and this is my career and um just be passionate just do what you're passionate about be be in the moment. Um, don't just go to work every day to earn a living. Go to work because you really want to do it. Um, and if you know if you if you don't enjoy what you're doing, this is eight hours of your day, if not more. You know, don't waste your life. If do what you're passionate about. And if you can't do what you're passionate about in your job, 
do it after work. If you're passionate about volunteering on a um, mountain trails foundation, uh, trail building group, do that. But do something that you're passionate about every single day and you will enjoy your life. I guarantee it. I think that's great advice. Um, let's get to your goosebump moment. After the goosebump moment, though, I do want to ask you about the future of Utah Olympic Park and the museums there. So tell us your goosebump moment, and then we'll wrap up with uh, what's ahead for you and the park. Yeah, my goosebump moment um, happened a lot, and that was watching the American flag get taken up to the top and the national anthem being sung, especially after 9-11. So Jimmy Shea, um, Tristan Gale, um, the, the Veneta Flowers on the bobsled, the women's bobsled team, just watching. I mean, I just get goosebumps and tears watching. And I do just still today watch the American flag get up, get taken to the top and the, and the national anthem. I just am so proud to be an American and proud to be here and proud to be a part of everything that this, this life has given me. It really is. You can't beat it. <laughs> What happens in 2021 and beyond there with the museums and the role that you're playing? Yeah, we are working toward, um, like I said, with the Alphagan Ski Museum um, updating. We update every year new exhibits um, to make it more interactive, more up to date, more technology. Technology changes every every day. So um, our biggest undertaking yet, so we're doing right now, um, and that's the um, the north side of our museum which incorporates um, eight exhibits are all going to be redone. The topo map, um, topographical map, which shows the Wasatch Front and the ski resorts in those areas and history about those. We've got snowboard. We've got an interactive table going in that um, is like a huge computer. We have videos, photos, and tell the story of each of the exhibits and the Olympics. And then you walk up the stairs to the 2002 Olympic Museum and you'll see that gets updated regularly too, um, but not as much because we, you know it's the history of the 2002 games. But now that we look toward maybe um, focusing on the 2030 or 34 games coming up, we will be looking at our exhibit space and maybe creating an exhibit of looking toward the future. And as that crystallizes, which there is a bid committee going on right now, and um, I have done a couple of um, displays for the bid committee prior to COVID um, with uh, Fraser Bullock and uh, Governor Herbert um, when they were announcing looking at the 2030 or 2034 games. So hopefully we'll be back in that mold and start revving it back up and uh, looking to the future. And until then, um, come and visit the Utah Olympic Park and the two free museums, the Alfingen Ski Museum and the Eccles 2002 Olympic, Olympic Games Museum on the second floor. And then go outside and watch those athletes. They're amazing. I and the listeners definitely need to take you up on that kind invitation. If people want to learn more about the museums, about the work that you're doing there, or if they just want to reconnect and swap stories about Salt Lake 2002, what's the best for, way for them to reach out and contact you? Okay. Our website is ingenmuseum.org or my um, email address. If you want to email, I'm, I love I love the Facebook and I love your podcast because I, a lot of those people I know and uh, worked with. So C Nelson at uolf.org. Uolf stands for Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation.org. So C Nelson at uolf.org. So would love to hear from you. 
even if it's just to, to say hello on the phone, because um, we can't really say hello in person, but come up to the museum. I'll have a mask on. I'll be wandering around and I'd love to show you through. All right. Perfect. Connie, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time today. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Connie, thank you so much. Thank you, Kristen.